And so, God, you are acquainted with all our ways. Oh, Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know who we are when no one's looking. You know who we are in public. Everything is known to you. And may we see with your eyes who we really are. In the name of Jesus, and we all said, amen. Well, good morning again. Have a seat. Uh, Like Charlie said, uh, I'd like to do about three Sundays on heresies. And this is, today I'm kicking off this heresy thing, and it's not really a classic heresy. You know, a classic heresy, which I'll talk about in a couple of weeks, is like, uh, what's the nature of Jesus? Is he all divine or is he all human? You know, that sort of thing. But not today. Today's really um, not a classic heresy per se, and technically it's not even really a heresy, but it, it, I think it's a heresy these days because it's a, uh, it's a heresy of discipleship or a failure of discipleship, and we've made a, a heretical mistake because um, we have split Jesus into Savior and Jesus as Lord, and so that's what I want to get into today. So here it is. The splitting of Jesus. Is Jesus our Savior, or is Jesus our Lord, or is he both? And of course, we're going to make the case that he is both, right? And um, in Christian uh, circles, we have run into this time and time again. Now, I didn't come up with this one. I ran into this reading Dallas Willard, uh, one of my favorite authors, And uh, he was talking about a fiery old pastor named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer died in 1963. You can't stick around Christianity too long without finding some little book by A.W. Tozer. And Tozer was adamant on this one thing. We keep splitting Jesus into Savior and Lord. And so Tozer was on this all the time. He knew what he was saying in his day. He says, I can't really call this a heresy, but he thought it was a heresy, right? So here's what Willard says about Tozer. He says, A.W. Tozer, and by the way, I gave you a half sheet of paper. If you chose to pick it up, you're a fortunate one because it has all the thick quotes that I'm going to give you, and they're not on the screen. So, um, yeah, share if you need to. A.W. Tozer, Willard says, A.W. Tozer had the feeling that a notable heresy had come into being throughout Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. Dallas Willard calls out those who want Jesus as Savior but not Lord. He says this, next on the list, But you might wish to think about, Willard says, you might wish to think about what your life amounts to before you die and about what kind of person you are becoming and about whether you really would be comfortable for eternity in the presence of one whose company you've not found especially desirable for the few hours and days of your earthly existence. And he is, after all, one who says to you now, follow me. Why would you want to spend eternity with a God that you don't care to be with now? Follow me. There are no more serious words out of the mouth of Jesus. Follow me has little to do with theology or doctrine or creeds or beliefs. It is a matter of lordship of Jesus. Follow me is the pressing question this morning. It has everything to do with, is Jesus the one? 
Is he my master? Is he the one who calls the shots? Am I submitted to him? 100%. Follow me. Those were the words that Simon the fisherman heard on the shores of the Sea of Galilee all those centuries ago. When Jesus first started his ministry. And he said to him, Follow me, and I will have you fish for people, is what Jesus told Simon, the fisherman. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Three short years of following Jesus, and Simon, the fisherman, had had his very identity changed. Jesus loved to change people's identities. He changed his name. He went from Simon, the fisherman, to Peter, the rock. Petra, in Greek meaning the rock. Ah, but Simon the fisherman knew not how costly the price of dropping those nets would be. And isn't that true for the Christian life? The first follow me that causes you to follow will not be the last follow me of the Christian life. Last weekend, in the midst of a snowstorm, in good Lakeland fashion, um, more aggressive than we are smart, We took off in a snowstorm. Several Lakelanders uh, made their way up to Conception Abbey. Generation 7 began, and it was our first retreat. And we were bound and determined to go on retreat. And so we took off 25 miles an hour, driving through a snowstorm that just so happened to be afflicting only us. And the other, okay, it was just us. There was nobody else out. But we got to the Abbey, and it was all safe and sound. That was great. Uh, And the next day, we sat around the cafeteria listening to a monk Tell us about his very special uh, visit to Peter's actual tomb in the Vatican. You know, the Vatican. And Peter's tomb is under St. Peter's Basilica. Duh. Under St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Okay? And according to this monk, St. Peter's tomb was really only in the past few decades rediscovered. Okay? Just a few decades ago, beneath the church, because it had long been forgotten, and they rediscovered Peter's tomb. Okay? So, according to this monk, this just happened um, not too long ago. Here's how it worked out. In the 4th century, Emperor Constantine had found out, because he was actually over in Constantinople, uh, had found out that... that, um, Peter's tomb, Peter had been buried in a common pagan secular graveyard. You know, we call it secular and pagan. It was Roman gods. But he was just buried in a normal grave. Okay? In those days, um, it was just bones. All right? So, and what had happened is, is that Constantine, when he found out where Peter's grave was, he says, we're building a church there. And when you're emperor, you can do this kind of stuff. We're building a church there, and I want you to put the altar right over Peter's grave and that church. Let it be done. So they built a church, nice church, right over Peter's grave, and the altar was right over um, Peter's grave, right? Well, you know, the next emperor comes along down through the years, and they want something bigger and flashier, you know, that's all about them. So they build a bigger remodeled church on top of that church expanding it and so forth. Pretty soon that's not good enough, so they build another one on top of that. Pretty soon nobody remembers the graveyard. Nobody remembers Peter's tomb. The whole thing becomes lost. But they start digging around a few decades ago, and they find this, like, church below the church. They're like, wait a second. 
what's this church? And then, oh, and down below that, there's a graveyard. Oh, no. We'd... And so they find Peter's actual grave. Okay? And they unearth the grave, and they find his dry bones right where the original church's altar, right below the original church's altar. Okay? All the bones are there except the feet. And you know, like, archaeologists are like, why no feet? And the theologians come in and say, like, oh, no feet. <laughs> um, Peter was crucified upside down because Peter did not want to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord Jesus. So he asked to be crucified upside down. I'm not quite sure what kind of excruciating crucifixion that is since you're not suffocating. I'm not understanding that, what's going on. But when it comes time for the Romans to cut you down, they cut you down and leave the feet. No feet in the tomb. The feet remain nailed to the cross. Follow me. Those same words that called Simon the fisherman and changed his name to Peter, the rock. To the last follow me of Jesus sitting on a shore, eating fish in a very, very uncomfortable silence with Simon the fisherman after Jesus rose from the dead. And in that comfortable, uh, uncomfortable silence, Simon the fisherman and Jesus the resurrected Lord, finally Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's there on your piece of paper, I think. If I put it there. If I didn't, there it is. John chapter 21. Notice Jesus doesn't call him Peter the Rock. Not after three betrayals. He's back to Simon the fisherman. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And how does Peter respond? Yes, Lord. Notice two things. Jesus calls him Simon, the old fisherman identity, and, and then Peter addresses Jesus as Lord, not Messiah, which means Savior. Jesus asks Simon if he loves him three times, and theologians love to say, he asks him if he loves him three times to make up for the three betrayals. And then Jesus once again redefines Simon as Peter. And he says this to him, because this is what follow me looks like. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. The first and the last words spoken to Peter by Jesus were follow me. Every one of us in the room have these bookends in our lives. Jesus proposing to us, follow me. Us not having any idea what we're really getting into. And at the end of life, it will be follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the one who fought against the Nazis as a Christian and stood up against them. The one who was executed 30 days before the, uh, World War II ended in Europe. 
a martyr for the faith? Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ call a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer did. Like Peter, one's entire life lies between these two calls. When Jesus asks in the beginning of our faith, we consider easy and cheap grace, just like Bonhoeffer often talked about, cheap grace. I love you for your Savior. I love you for your grace. Give me everything. I love to to have you as my friend. But what's required of us at the end of life and through the rest of our life is nothing less than death. Rarely a physical death like Bonhoeffer or Peter. Rarely a physical death. Always 100% a death to self. You will be led where you do not wish to go. A certain death to self. The cross, everyone, is a call to the unbidden life. The cross is a call to an unbidden life. You do not choose it. You have no no idea where it will take you. This is what it means to be a Christian who has put together Savior and Lord into one Jesus. There is but one. And if the Savior is full of grace, then the Lord is full of grit. Grace and grit. You have to have both put together in the Christian life. There is grace and there is grit. There is Jesus, the one who loves you beyond your own love for yourself, your own imagining. And there is the call to the grit, to the life that you would never choose on your own. That very life will change the world. Whether you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr., right on down the line. Those who own up to Jesus being both Savior and Lord go on to do wonderful things with their life, a life they would never choose. And yet, it is the change in their identity that changes everything. I love the uh, lesser-known Old Jerusalem Bible. I love the Jerusalem Bible translation for its classic language. I don't read it all the time. It's actually the Jerusalem translation is the ones the monks use, and that's how I kind of ran into it because I hang out with monks. And I love the Jerusalem Bible because I ran into this one passage that I saw in a film about monks. And it says this, and it's sort of out of date, but I love, I love it for its tension. And it says this. It's not on your piece of paper. I think we got it on the screen. You have seduced me, Yahweh. I have let myself be seduced. You have overpowered me. You were the stronger, says good old Jeremiah. 39 years Jeremiah was a prophet in Israel. 39 years, not one day of anyone listening to him. He was a complete failure in changing the people. And he says to God, I let myself be seduced by you. If you're feeling cranky, go read Jeremiah. You got a friend. There's something edgy and uncomfortable about Jeremiah thinking that he's let himself be seduced by God. How did I get into this? You have seduced me, Yahweh, and I have let myself be seduced. Grown men, serious, dedicated men, uh, monks, gritty men of prayer, committed their whole life to prayer. Embrace this language of a seduction by God. Seduction is not really an appropriate term anymore in our day and age. 
But the thought of God seducing us, it just grinds the edges off of the heresy of splitting Jesus into Lord, but not, uh, splitting Jesus into Savior, but not Lord. The old idea of God seducing us smacks even harder in our curtain context in the term seduce because nobody ever wants to be seduced. Seduced is wrong, right? And yet, did not Peter let himself be seduced by Jesus? Follow me. At the beginning, and then the seduction, follow me at the end. If we do not follow Jesus, we are not resisting the one very thing that we want so, so, so much in this day and age, which is to have a meaningful life. The one thing that would heal us. The one thing that would take us to a place where none of us would ever choose or can't even imagine. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the, of the living God. He bids you come and die. And in that death, you become everything that you never even dreamt of. Remember, everyone, the God that you can imagine will never change you. Only the God that is beyond our imagination will change us. Follow me. Follow me. I don't know. Somehow I think the the idea of the Jerusalem Bible's choice of the word seduction is even stronger now. More challenging now. Made more poignant by today's sensitive culture. I think there's something to it that, that just creates the whole edge. It's like one author said so many years ago when I read him. He said... No one ever says no to Jesus. They just say not yet. Once we've split Savior from Lord, then Jesus is at risk of simply becoming a life coach, a therapist, an advisor to simply help us become better fishermen. But we remain fishermen, fisherwomen, husbands, dads, employees, investors, business owners, moms, aunts, grandparents, Jesus becomes Savior and convenient friend. But with Lord, we fall at the foot of the cross and we cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just like the sinner said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know how important that is in the church that it became this phrase, this prayer, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. Over and over, chorusing in the church and even in modern music, Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. With Jesus as Lord, we choose to be crucified upside down. With Jesus as Lord, we hear both follow me's, the one at the beginning and the one at the end. And we drop our nets, and the other one, when we get called into the unbidden life and no longer choose how our life ends up. In the room this morning, there are those and I'm particularly talking to those that are young, that need to hear the first call to follow me, not knowing what the last follow me will be. There are those here this morning that are hearing the first follow me and they're saying, yes, Lord, you are my Savior, who will then be propelled and seduced and caught up into a life that even others won't agree with. Your parents, 
who will think you've become a Christian fanatic. And you will be the kind of person who changes the world and changes other people's lives. There is a time to stop listening to all the other fishermen and listen to Jesus. To respond to Jesus is to respond to the grace and the grit of Jesus. I believe Christian music, you know, like in the video, I think we live in this tension between stating how much we love Jesus and how much we submit to Jesus. Maybe it's just Lakeland and kind of our little bit of a Gen X thingy going, you know, we got a little cynicism, a little grunge, whatever you want to call it. Something that kind of says, oh yeah, you say you love Jesus? Really? Are you sure you're not lying? Does your life look like you love Jesus? Got enough evidence to convict you? Christian music kind of lives in this tension, though. Because somewhere in there, there's a place for fake it till you make it. There's a place of hope. There's a place where we sing certain songs, and our worship leaders on the video are saying, like, there's a really good place for that in your private worship or when you're buzzing along in your car, you know, and you're singing, you know, I love you and all the cool stuff. And maybe another place when we all get together and we say, this is who we are as a people. I want you to live in that tension. I'm not going to give you an answer on it, mostly because I don't have an answer, but there, you know. That's the tension between Savior and Lord, and you have to hold both together. Consider the lyrics to this old hymn that I grew up with. It's named, All to Jesus I Surrender. Now, if Dietrich Bonhoeffer sang, All to Jesus I Surrender, I'm buying it. If Dan sings it, don't buy it. First verse, All to Jesus I Surrender. All to Him I Freely Give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Then comes the chorus. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Had it just been Lord, it would have been a little bit better for today's message. Should we sing this song if we have no real intention of surrendering? Shall, or are we just, shall we just fake it till we make it? Perhaps we can sing songs like this in that same way we find so often in Scripture, where people are living in that tension. Like that time there was the father who had the uh, demon-possessed, it says in one uh, gospel, and epileptic, it says in the other gospel. And there's his father and his son's falling in fires and falls in the water and like just seizures all the time. And the disciples could not cast out the demon. And Jesus shows up and he says, what's going on? And the man says, your, your disciples they can't get the job done. They can't cast out the demon. And so Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, if you're able, cast out the... And Jesus says, if I'm able, if I'm able... And then comes the prayer. 
I believe. Help me in my unbelief. You want a prayer for your life? Mark chapter 9. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Years ago, I was driving along with one of my youth group students, high schooler. I'm just out of college. And I was so excited about um, students coming to Christ. But it just weirded me out that everyone didn't become a Christian. I go, it's grace. It's just, I'm telling him this as we're driving along. I go, it's grace. It's just a free gift. Who would ever want to deny the free gift of grace? God loves them. It's grace. It's just, who wouldn't want to be accepted by God, by Jesus What's wrong with that? Why wouldn't anybody, everybody on the planet want to do that? And Daryl, the kid sitting next to me, he just goes, well, I'll tell you why. Because it cost everything. I had the Savior part. I didn't have the Lord part. I'd split Jesus. I ran into a prayer years ago. I put it on your piece of paper at the bottom. It's a, it's a prayer by one of my favorite authors, theologian, biblical scholar, Michael Green. He's also a missionary for decades and decades in South America. Michael Green. And he wrote this prayer for people like us. And it says this, Jesus, I'm amazed that you bother about me and love me and want me to be your friend and disciple. I know that there's a lot in my life that needs cleaning up. Please come and do it. I still have lots of questions that bother me. I like that part. But I lay them all before you in the tangle that they are. I like that part too. I do believe that you went to the cross for me to deal with my guilty past. I do believe that you are alive again. You invite people to come to you and I'm coming. I'm coming now. You like that prayer? I love that prayer. Now, in the room this morning, there may be some people in here, and I, I think today's culture, people kind of know what a Jesus is, you know, Jesus, whatever that, you know, guy is. And so for like, for me to say like, you need to come to Jesus, and, and everybody be like, yeah, I kind of got that down. But if I say, you need to make Jesus your Lord, like, oh, oh, you mean not just drop my net at the side of the Sea of Galilee, but actually like here to follow me at the end of my life. That's a different call. I think that prayer is about the second one. About I am welcoming the unbidden life. The grit. Jesus is Lord. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer this to you. It's not a real big offer, but I'm making it anyway. We're going to do communion here in just a moment. And I'm going to stand out front here with the anointing oil because for centuries, um, actually, not just Christianity, but a lot of different um, traditions use oil. And the anointing oil will just simply say, mark me. In Christian, Christian tradition, the anointing oil is a sign that you've become a witness. You've seen something. You have a testimony and you tell a story. And if that's happening, maybe you want to. You're just like this prayer. I'm coming. I, don't have, I have questions. I don't have all the answers, but I want to. If this is your first time doing that, then I'm offering, come down and I will anoint you. I'm not going to talk to you right here, right here and now. Um, but we could talk afterwards, which I'll tell you about in just a few minutes. And you can start that. Now, if you're an old-timer Christian, 
And you're like, I like that prayer too. Well, don't come for anointing. I'll deal with you later. You're coming for a communion. That's yours. All right? But you're like, I think everybody ought to pray that prayer. Matter of fact, we ought to pray it right now. Would you please stand up? Now, if you don't believe this prayer, then just kind of let your eyes roll across the words. But if this is a, your prayer, we're going to just do it all together. I need it too. All right? So there it is. Share if you need to. Jesus, here, follow me. Jesus, I am amazed that you should bother about me and love me and want me to be your friend and disciple. I know that there is a lot in my life that needs cleaning up. Please come and do it. I still have a lot of questions that bother me, and I lay them all before you in the tangle that they are. I do believe that you went to the cross for me to deal with my guilty past. And I do believe that you are alive again. You invite people to come to you, and I'm coming. I'm coming now. Amen?